0: What's up everybody, Gen X Dividend Investor here, and welcome to my channel dedicated to dividends, passive income, wealth management, and business. Today in my second stock reveal video, I'll be doing an analysis on Pfizer, which is my 24th largest stock by market cap in my dividend portfolio. After this, I've got 23 more reveal videos to go until my entire dividend portfolio is shown. Now, if I was going for the clickbaity title, I would have said, This just in. Pfizer cutting dividend. Watch out. Oh, no. It's the end of the world. But you heard me right. They actually are planning on cutting our lovely dividend. But sit tight, because you shouldn't feel the dividend cut if all goes to plan. I wonder how many current Pfizer dividend investors understand that this probably will be the second time they cut their dividend in approximately a decade. How many know that they used to be a dividend aristocrat? Well, that's what I'm here to do. Help share some information so you can make the best investment decisions. So please subscribe, like, click the bell icon, share, and comment. Alright, let me zoom in a bit. I called this a copy of my Google Portfolio spreadsheet because in it I've deleted the first 23 rows that are normally there So I can just display my 24th and 25th positions by market value, i.e. this video about Pfizer and my Disney video. Over each subsequent portfolio video, I'll show and analyze another business of mine going from my smallest position to my largest until my full dividend portfolio is revealed. This portfolio represents a significant portion of my net worth. As I mentioned in my last video, what you will see is real skin in the game for my family. Pfizer is one of those nice high-yield defensive names that conservative income investors love to own for its fairly safe and growing income in most market conditions. So what does Pfizer do? They buy or develop drugs that treat or cure diseases and then sell them around the world. In this video, I'll go over a few of Pfizer's key metrics that I'm tracking in my spreadsheet, then I'll cover a brief history of Pfizer, and then I'll do an analysis of Pfizer itself discussing their financial statements and what I look at to gauge them as a business. Throughout this video, I'll also talk about their competitors, some potential risks you should be aware of, their executive leadership, and some other valuable items. Now the spreadsheet's getting a little bit more interesting with two stocks in it, and 23 more to come in future videos. I have 453.4 shares of Pfizer. It's 0.4 due to having Pfizer in a drip, which is an acronym for Dividend Reinvestment Plan. That just means that when a dividend is paid out, I've defaulted my broker to buy more shares of Pfizer rather than just leave that dividend cash in my brokerage. And since the amount of shares I could buy with that dividend doesn't normally add up to a full share, most brokerages via their drip plan buy fractional shares of stock. Some brokerages, like M1, also allow you to buy fractional shares of stock. Pfizer stock price will be red if it went down on the day I'm making this video, green if it went up. Same for price change. So today we see red. The last 365 days is a red graph spark line for Pfizer, which means that a year ago, the stock was trading at a higher amount than it is today. If this graph line was green, it would mean that the stock today is higher than it was 365 days ago. Current PE is highlighted in green because I've put a conditional flag on that cell in case the PE of a stock is compelling enough to draw my attention to it. I've made each stock have its own unique compelling P.E. level to check against to optimize when I think it is potentially worth investing in it. The regular P.E. ratio is its current stock price over its earnings per share. The forward P.E. ratio is a current stock price over its predicted earnings per share. Why is P.E. important? Well, it is a quick way you can do a simple check to determine the market value of a stock as compared to the company's earnings. A high P.E. could mean that a stock's price is too high relative to earnings and possibly overvalued, so it's an indicator that it's not a good time to buy the stock because it's too pricey. Conversely, a low PE might indicate that the current stock price is low relative to earnings, so an indicator that maybe it is a good time to evaluate and then buy the stock. It's helpful to look at its PE relative to competitors and understand the sector or industry a company is in, because each sector has its own PE levels they tend to operate in, and then even within a sector, there are PEs that like companies can gauged against. Usually, you will find that companies in stable and mature industries that have moderate growth potential have lower P.E. ratios than companies in young, fast-growing industries. So when an investor is comparing P.E. ratios from two companies as potential investments, it is important to compare companies from the same industry and with similar business characteristics. Here is some P.E. data I pulled from Guru Focus. Pfizer is in the healthcare sector, which has an average P.E. of 25.4, but that's for all of healthcare. The pharmaceutical subsector within healthcare has a lower P.E. average. Now let's look at some of Pfizer's competitor P.E.s. Some of these are hard to compare Pfizer against. Like J&J does a lot more than Pharma, but I still include it. Why do I list both trailing P.E., usually just called P.E., and forward P.E.? Well it is interesting to see what story each metric might be telling. Sometimes the trailing PE and forward PE are similar. Other times they're different. If they are materially different then dig into it to determine why. If a company is quickly growing, then the forward PE could be much higher than the trailing PE. If it sells a business unit or does some sort of massive restructuring, forward earnings could temporarily nosedive. Okay, next is DDM. DDM stands for Dividend Discount Model a method of valuing a company's stock price based on the theory that its stock is worth the sum of all of its future dividend payments, discounted back to their present value. In other words, it is used to value stocks based on net present value of the future dividends. I don't put too much weight on a stock's DDM, but I think it is still interesting to see how it compares to other metrics, such as the free cash flow method of calculating a stock's intrinsic value, as well as looking at simpler things such as PE. In this case, it shows that Pfizer isn't quite a buy. Next is portfolio allocation, or the percent of the portfolio by market value that the stock takes up. You can see in the pie chart below that with only two of of my 25 stocks currently listed in it, right here, that the graph is just starting to get more interesting. Now we see that Healthcare, a.k.a. Pfizer, takes up slightly over half the overall portfolio value of the two stocks I list, and Disney, AKA entertainment, takes up the rest. Of course, once I list all my 25 stocks, then the pie chart will be much more useful to see if I'm potentially overweight or underweight in different sectors. As I previously mentioned, I have a conditional on annual dividend to tell me when it changes. Green if it goes up, or red if they cut their dividend. So if it went up to two, it would go green. If for some reason they cut it down to one, it would go red. It's a handy automated way to tell when they check their dividend without me realizing it. Today we see that Pfizer's annual dividend is $1.44, which is dynamically pulled from Nasdaq.com. It pays out quarterly, which means they'll pay you $0.36 per share for every Pfizer share you own per quarter, regardless if the stock price goes up or down. An easy place to check how often a company pays their dividends is on streetinsider.com, or just go to Pfizer's investor relations site and see how their payment history has been. Let's go to Pfizer's site. And then let's go to their stock information. And dividend and split history. So if we look at the pay date, we see they paid in September 6.3. So they're paying quarterly 36 cents right now. Okay, back to the spreadsheet. Then I have the dividend increase date, which is what month every year they tend to increase their dividend. You can see this when you look at their data on Street Insider. So, if we're looking here, we can tell that January 31st they increased their dividend, February 1st, February 1st, February. So that's when they tend to increase their dividend around Jan, Feb. So the dividend pay date is the date when you'll get paid or just got paid. I have a conditional on this field so that it highlights green if today's date is the pay date. I highlight it in yellow if the pay date is within the next 30 days, otherwise I color it gray. Next we have dividend yield and we see that Pfizer is higher than Disney. This is simply calculated by dividing annual dividend by share price. Don't make a mistake of chasing high yields, anything over 5% is getting high. And then I've pulled the 3-year and 5-year dividend compound annual growth rate dynamically from Guru, Focus, and Reuters, as well as manually calculated the 5-year just as a sniff test against what is being pulled dynamically. Now that we have two of my 25 stocks listed here in the spreadsheet, we can start seeing how the average weighted 5-year dividend compound annual growth rate is changing. Since Pfizer has a higher yield than Disney, it is raising up the overall estimated portfolio average. We also see the changing average weighted dividend yield, which is the portfolio's overall yield. One interesting thing to do is to use a dividend income calculator using this data to see how your portfolio and dividend income would increase over time. Let's check out BuyUpside.com and use the dividend income calculator with and without dividend reinvestment. So let's put in that market value of 30,887, and then a starting yield of 2.77%, and a average weighted five-year dividend compound annual growth rate of 11.01%. Let's assume no new cash in the portfolio, run this for 40 years. So a year from now, we'd be getting 950 bucks of passive income, assuming we were dripping this. 10 years out, if we kept on doing that, passive income would be estimated 3,700 bucks and you can see how it just compounds quickly. Okay, back to the spreadsheet. Um, We have the market value, which I don't care about, but use the metric for my portfolio allocation percentage and such. And then we have the important column, which is annual return. Combined, these two stocks are dripping $855 a year. Then we have a payout ratio at 72% per Finviz. That means for every one dollar Pfizer earns it pays investors $0.72. The payout ratio is an important financial metric we dividend investors want to look at to determine the sustainability of a company's dividend payments. A high payout ratio may mean that the company is sharing more of its earnings with its shareholders which on the surface sounds good, but that can lead to a risk of not being able to keep increasing the dividend or worse having to cut it. A payout ratio greater than 100% may be interpreted to mean that the company's paying out more in dividends than it's earning, which is unsustainable. I personally like to see payout ratios around 60% for most companies. I say most because it depends on the company's industry. Companies in defensive industries, such as utilities and telecommunications, have stable and predictable cash flows and earnings and so they often have higher payout ratios than cyclical companies such as energy. Cyclical companies typically have lower payout ratios since their earnings fluctuate considerably in line with the economic cycle. In the spreadsheet I'm pulling the payout ratio from FinViz. There are different ways to calculate payout ratio for a given period of time. For example, dividends paid divided by net income, or annualized dividends per share divided by current calendar year earnings per share. Dividends paid is on the cash flow statement. A quick check shows that dividends paid equals 7.978 bill. Now let's get net income. It's on the income statement. Net income is 11.153 bill. So 7.978 divided by 11.153 equals 72%. So, we double check what FinViz had for payout ratio, and it's correct. Okay, let's go back to the spreadsheet. Okay, the next five fields of dividend history information are obviously very important to us. Let's look at the dividend history on the Pfizer website for the number of years of dividend data, which is just a metric that I use to identify how many years the companies had dividends, regardless if they delayed them. Took them away altogether, cut them, or whatever. Sometimes you need to look in multiple places to get this data. Usually good brokers have good tools for this. Ideally I'd like to see a company that has been paying dividends for over 20 years. So let's go over this and uh, see what we see. Here's the pay date, dividend, All right, so their data goes back to 1980. Started with 36 cents a share. Went up, went up, went up. And then here you see they did a two-for-one stock split. So basically, you got twice your number of shares, and they um, effectively keep the same, because 29 cents times two is 58. So no dividend change here, even though visually it looks like there's a dividend cut. You're getting twice as many shares, so it doesn't impact you. Kept on increasing it. Another two-for-one stock split, so you see they lower the dividend, give you twice as many shares, so still no change, still increasing. Another two-for-one stock split in 95, again no change. Another one, here they do a three-for-one, and increase the dividend a little bit, because a normal three-for-one would have been less than that. And then this is interesting because we see that they lowered it in 2009 from $0.32 to $0.16, but it wasn't a split. So that usually means a dividend cut. So let's dig into that and see if we can figure it out. Update Pfizer to buy Wyeth for $68 billion cut its dividend. So, this is an article from 2009, January. Um, Pfizer, the number one drug maker, said on Monday it would acquire US rival Wyeth for $68 billion in a move to diversify its revenue base. Um, the world's largest drug maker, which raised $22.5 million in debt from a consortium of banks to finance the deal, also cut its dividend. number of years with dividend increases is where I try to go back to the beginning of when the company started giving dividends to see how many years they increased their dividend payment ideally I'd like to see this to be over 20 years next is dividend cuts this is where I'd like to see zero and we just found that they did indeed cut their dividend uh, about 10 years ago generally speaking a company that has cut their dividend is something I tend not to invest in but you need to dig into the data to find out why it was cut and the reason might convince you that it was okay this cut they did is, is a strike in my book against Pfizer. Did you know that Pfizer used to be a dividend aristocrat until 2010? They had a 43-year history of increasing their dividends until they acquired Wyeth. But still, I think they're a great farmer play with an extensive track record, and they have added some health care to my portfolio, so I decided to take a small position in it. Something to be aware of is that right now Pfizer is spinning off its subsidiary Upjohn to Mylon to close in mid-2020 via reverse Morris trust. Upjohn is their segment where they have lost exclusivity, which means that those are drugs that are no longer protected by patents, which is called off patent. A reverse Morris trust allows Pfizer to transfer Upjohn to Mylon in a tax-free manner. The main thing to be able to do it in a tax-free manner is that after the transaction happens, Pfizer's stockholders need to own a majority ownership stake by voting rights and value of the combined firm. By offloading its established Upjohn medicine segment to Mylon, Pfizer will have $12 billion in additional cash because the new company is taking on that as debt and paying them, and Pfizer's shareholders will own 57% of the company. With this cash injection, Pfizer can do whatever they want, like build their pipeline more or target acquisitions or, or etc. Their CFO Frank D'Amelia on a recent investor call said that the $12 billion cash from the transaction will go toward paying down debt and returning dividends to shareholders, both of which are good things generally speaking. The downside of this move is that spinning the segment off will decrease Pfizer's product diversity and cut into their free cash flow, and it makes them into more of an innovative pharma company looking for home runs, with a history of having them, rather than going for singles or doubles. At least that's how I see it. It also means Pfizer will be cutting its dividend for the second time in its history that I found. But this dividend cut theoretically shouldn't impact you, so I wouldn't hold this one against them, just the first one with Wyeth. I'll explain more later. So what is Upjohn? Well, the Upjohn Company was a pharmaceutical manufacturing firm founded in 1886 in Michigan by Dr. William E. Upjohn. Then, in 1995, Upjohn merged with Swedish-based Pharmacia AB, to form Pharmacia and Upjohn. And then in 2002, Pfizer merged with Pharmacia and they kept the name Pfizer. So what should this mean for us dividend investors who have Pfizer stock? In one of the presentations that Pfizer gave to the market recently, Pfizer basically stated that the combined dividend to Pfizer shareholders is expected to equal Pfizer's dividend immediately prior to closing. So let's call this new entity that Pfizer and Mylon are forming Company X. That means you will get a new dividend stock in your brokerage based on how many shares of Pfizer you have. So even though technically Pfizer is cutting its dividend, I wouldn't count this against Pfizer like a normal dividend cut because what we're getting isn't change. And I believe many would argue that this is good for shareholders in a 1 plus 1 equals 3 perspective over the long term, which just means that they're creating more value for shareholders than if they left it as it currently is. They also estimated that the payout ratio of free cash flow of the company, X, will be 25% to reinforce the message that our dividend payments should be safe. At least that is what should happen based on my understanding, but until it happens they could change what they do. I'd recommend you dig into it yourself before taking any actions. By the way, this is part of the reason it is good to understand who a company's executive management team is and how long they've been in place because between them and the board of directors Core decisions and philosophies like do they cut the dividend or even have a dividend are made. That being said, sometimes a company needs to cut their dividend to stay viable, but I tend not to want to invest in those companies. Also, some execs aren't a fan of having their companies pay out dividends. Steve Jobs wasn't. Warren Buffett isn't either. Buffett prefers to reinvest profits in things that allow his company to improve its efficiency, expand its reach, and create new products and services. So, again, it's always important to know what you're Um, The perspective of of your execs. Okay, back to the spreadsheet. Next, we come to average weighted years of increasing dividends so I can calculate my portfolio's weighted average for how many years of increasing dividends my stocks have had. Then I added in an aristocrat field that is dynamically filled in for stocks that have been raising their dividends for the previous 25 or more consecutive years. Then I list what the beta for the company is. Let me elaborate on beta and risk for a moment. The beta of a stock tells you theoretically how much risk the stock will add or potentially subtract from a diversified portfolio. Some folks don't think of beta that way, but I do. Now think about risk in one of two categories when you're investing. Systematic risk and unsystematic risk. Systematic risk is the risk of the entire market declining, like what happened in the financial crisis of 2008. In a systematic risk event, No amount of diversification will prevent you from losing value in your portfolio. Unsystematic risk, also called diversifiable risks, are usually things that can happen to an individual business. An example might be a company with a warehouse which gets destroyed in a tornado, or maybe workers go on strike in that company. So it's affecting the company, but probably not all companies. So what about the actual beta number? Well, a beta of 1 means that a stock's price is strongly correlated with the market. That means it has systematic risk, like all stocks, but the beta calculation can't detect any unsystematic risk. So adding a stock with a beta of 1 to your portfolio doesn't add any risk to the portfolio, but it also doesn't increase the chances that your portfolio will yield excess return. If a stock has less than a 1 beta, it means that it is less volatile than the market, meaning your portfolio is less risky, with the stock included in it, than without it. A beta larger than 1 means that the stock is more volatile than the market. So a beta of 1.3 means that the stock is 30% more volatile than the market, which means adding it to your portfolio will increase its risk, but also give you a greater chance of return. So at this stage of my investing, I tend to favor low volatility. So I like to see low betas in my dividend stocks. In general, stocks like utilities are less than 1, energy companies are around 1, and tech companies are higher than 1. So the average weighted beta total tells me what the portfolio's average weighted beta is then i list market cap and average weighted market cap and the rest of the fields are just for use in various fields in the spreadsheet okay now before i dig deeper into pfizer i want to say that if you watched my last video you saw that i like to dig into the history of the company and its founders and such this doesn't mean you need to do this i do it because i find it interesting and useful sometimes i find details when i read annual reports i.e 10ks And those details, combined with everything else, helped create a sort of conviction level for me in each of my businesses. And I found that conviction useful during volatile market conditions. One of my favorite quotes is, in the short run, the market is a voting machine, but in the long run, it is a weighing machine. Buffett claims that Graham said that when he was in his classroom. What it means is that the market prices represent, sometimes irrationally, a short-term popularity contest like voting is in an election. But what matters in the long run is a company's actual underlying business performance and not the investing public's opinion about its prospects in the short run. After losing a lot of net worth in the dot-com crash and again in the 2008 financial recession, I learned a lot. The first time was both devastating and humbling. Devastating because i had never experienced financial loss like that before and humbling because at the time I thought I was hot stuff because I had been picking winners and everything seemed easy. Of course, everyone was picking winners at that time. You could probably throw a dart at a wall of stocks and almost always land on a winner. But my overconfidence was cut down to size when reality hit and the dot-com bubble burst. The second time I was in a market crash was a little easier to take, but it was still a kick in the gut. Both experiences helped me learn, in a very tangible way, that crashes and such are inevitable if you invest over a long enough period of time. I also learned that if I just kept putting one foot in front of the other and kept investing, things would come back. And they did, both times. So I learned conviction and patience, and that I could persist through down markets. So now I try to be patient and convicted in what I really believe in, and researching helps me get where I feel I need to be. And it helps me sell when I feel that time is right, or when I need to, though my preference is to hold things forever. We all know the next nasty crash is coming again, and there are no guarantees for success in investing, but luck favors the prepared. Anyways, how I analyze things isn't what you need to do, but I do recommend at least minimally researching what you buy. And if you don't want to do that, then the best advice I can give is just to invest in VTI or VOO or VTSACS or any of those low-cost ETFs that cover the market, and then just keep funneling your money into them, regardless of what's going on in the world. Don't even look at it, just keep plowing money in and eventually you'll be set. I'm not a financial advisor, but I feel that is pretty sound advice. Personally, I love investing in single dividend stocks, and I like researching, so that's what I do. But don't feel you need to do that to be successful. Okay, now let's jump into a brief overview on Pfizer's history. Pfizer was founded in 1849 by two cousins, Charles Pfizer and Charles Earhart, who immigrated from Germany to Brooklyn Pfizer was trained as a chemist, and Earhart was a confectioner. Pfizer got a loan from his father for $2,500 to start a chemicals business in a factory in Brooklyn. Their first product was a good-tasting antiparasitic drug made to taste like toffee. It was a success. The American Civil War started in 1862, and the need for massive amounts of painkillers and antiseptics for the Union armies gave Pfizer and Earhart the ability to grow their chemicals business quickly. After the war, they found a new niche, which was to produce the citric acid needed for the new soft drinks industry for brands like Coca-Cola and Pepsi. That symbiotic partnership was the basis of their growth for many years. Earhart died in 1891, and the partnership agreement he had formed with Pfizer said that the surviving partner could buy out the other's share of the company for half its inventory value. So Pfizer exercised his option, paying Earhart's heirs about 120 grand for half of the business. Quick side note today, Pfizer has a market cap of about $195 billion. That's a lot of Advil. Pfizer died in 1906, leaving a company of around 200 employees in the hands of Emil Pfizer, who served as the president until the 1940s, and he was the last member of the Pfizer family to be involved in managing the company. Pfizer remained a private company until 1942, when they IPO'd with 240,000 shares of common stock offered to the public. Pfizer has a rich history of innovation in drugs as well as improving production efficiencies of existing drugs. During World War II, Pfizer said that most of the penicillin that went ashore with allied forces on D-Day was made by Pfizer. In 1950, Pfizer started using sales reps to sell drugs, and it was another turning point in their ability to grow. Pfizer also started to expand outside the U.S. In 1952, Pfizer formed its agricultural division and started doing business in animal health. By 1960, Pfizer had businesses that stretched from pills to perfume and petrochemicals to pet products, in their words. Throughout the 60s and 70s, Pfizer continued to introduce new drugs to the marketplace, and revenue kept shooting up. Innovation was core to their DNA, and that paid off in the 80s with a series of blockbuster drugs. The 90s and 2000s would soon take this blockbuster-based success to new levels. Drugs like Lipitor and Viagra and others you would recognize came out. Since the 2000s, Pfizer has been involved in a lot of huge mergers and acquisitions. Warner-Lambert in 2000, Pharmacia in 2002, Wyeth in 2009, Hospira in 2015, and then a bunch in 2016, including Anacor Pharmaceuticals, Bamboo Therapeutics, Medivation, and part of AstraZeneca's business. By the way, something to be aware of. Last year the company reached a deal with GlaxoSmithKline to combine their consumer healthcare divisions in order to create a $13 billion per year sales drug company which Pfizer would own 32% of. This will operate under the Glaxo name and should close later in 2019. This year they announced they would buy Theracon for $810 million. Let's dive into some of the details about Pfizer. It is one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. They currently have over 90,000 employees with a large number of sales reps. And they've been the world's largest for quite some time. So Pfizer buys or develops drugs that treat or cure diseases and then sells them around the world. They develop medicines and vaccines covering a bunch of disciplines including immunology, cardiology, oncology, endocrinology, and neurology. You no doubt have heard of Viagra and Lipitor, two of its blockbuster drugs. They also have Xanax and Zoloft, which you have probably also heard of, to treat anxiety, amongst other things. Other recognizable things they also sell include ChapStick, which is a lip balm. Here's a chart from 2012 for lip balm and cold sore medication. By the way, Burt's Bees is owned by Clorox. I love Burt's Bees. About seven years ago, I was in Vegas for CES, and my lips were so dry So I got some Burt's Bees in the hotel convenience store, and now literally every morning and night since since that day I've been buying it. Anyways, Pfizer has some other recognizable products, such as Advil, which I use, and Preparation H, which I'm grateful I haven't had to use, and Centrum. My daily vitamins I take are Centrum. I've been using them for years. So at 100,000 feet, how Pfizer makes revenue and profits is easy to grasp but the actual industry they are in is vastly complex. There's a slew of business processes that happens between developing a drug and someone taking a drug. There's a large R&D innovation process to create a new drug. Then it has to go through a bunch of clinical trials to ensure that the drugs are safe for consumption. Then there's a long and challenging regulatory process that it needs to clear. If they do clear that regulatory hurdle, then they still need to pass financial thresholds to merit the payers and pharmacy benefit managers to feel they are viable. Then the drugs need to go through a marketing process, and then of course the doctors and the medical community need to feel that the drug is worth it. To make real profit, they need to go through these steps while they maintain their exclusivity to maximize return, knowing that better drugs could always be discovered by their competitors. So not exactly a simple process, but Pfizer has been doing it very well for a long time, which shows part of the moat that Pfizer has built up. Their investment in research and development is part of what enables Pfizer to win. In 2016, they were on top of the charts for R&D spend and prescription medicine sales. And if you look at the top pharma products by sales worldwide in 2018, you can see Pfizer has four of the top 15 in Eliquis, Enbrel, Prevnar, and Lyrica, which combines for more than any other company on the list. Pfizer has around a $200 billion market cap, which puts it as the 33rd largest company in the world, according to Forbes. But how many big pharma companies are even in the top 100? Let's take a look at pharma companies for name recognition. So here we see that Pfizer is the second most recognizable pharma company in the U.S. behind Johnson & Johnson. When asked which pharma company would you prefer to use if you had to buy drugs, Pfizer was also number two on the list. For my dividend investing, I wanted to calculate the yield on cost for Pfizer over different time periods to see when it would really pay off, assuming its previous trends held into the future. So I'm using a manual five-year dividend compound annual growth rate from the last five years, and I'm assuming we see similar growth going forward. So Pfizer looks nice for a conservative blue chip at an almost 4% yield on cost. Its five-year yield on cost, assuming they follow previous trends, looks okay at about 5.5%. And then from 10 years on out, the yield on cost is okay relative to other dividend stocks out there. So to put this another way, if you need some income right now, you might want to start evaluating Pfizer. So let's look at some of the internals of Pfizer. In 2016, Pfizer had commercial operations that were broken into two segments, Pfizer Innovative Health, called IH, and Pfizer Essential Health, EH. In 2019, they managed their commercial operations through a new structure of three businesses, BioPharma, Upjohn, and Consumer Healthcare, which is their over-the-counter business. That business is being combined with GlaxoSmithKline, which Pfizer will then own 32% of. We already talked about how Upjohn is planned for change. So they are getting laser focused on biopharma and putting mechanisms in place to get revenue from other areas that they won't directly be managing. IH was focused on developing and commercializing medicines and vaccines to improve lives, as well as products for consumer healthcare. This is where Eloquis, Chantix, Lyrica, at least in the US and Japan and certain other markets, and Prevnar 13 were included. IH is where they sell Centrum and Advil, which Nicholas Hall's retail sales data said were in the top 10 largest selling consumer healthcare brands in the world. The essential health division are legacy brands which have lost or would soon lose exclusivity. This includes Lipitor, Lyrica in some countries, and Viagra, amongst others. Viagra lost exclusivity in the US in December of 2017. A lot of folks in the dividend community have been talking about AbbVie and how it's losing its patent protection on its blockbuster Humira drug, which is why they're seeking to mitigate that revenue loss by acquiring Allergen. Pfizer and other pharmacy companies should benefit from the world population, which is aging. Look at this interesting view from Visual Capitalist. Pfizer's strategic focus on biopharma will allow them to capitalize on some megatrends like the aging population, so potential for them to pour more R&D into aging-related drugs and then benefit accordingly. Another megatrend they should benefit from is the rise of the new middle class that's happening in a variety of international markets. So like most pharmaceutical companies, their revenue primarily comes from their drugs. Let's look at a breakdown of the drugs and percent of revenue contribution that's listed in their 10K. What is great about this chart is that no one drug represents a huge chunk of the revenue like some pharma companies out there. This is good diversification across products and enables decently stable revenue. Let's pull up macro trends here. Ideally I'd like to see growing revenue and profit regardless of the market conditions. If we look over the last few years, Pfizer's net income continues to trend positively with a spike due to the Trump tax changes. So let's just do a quick analysis of Pfizer's financial statements, and then I'll do a line-by-line financial statement set of videos later. For a more in-depth analysis, we should be looking at a lot more trends, ratios, comparing to other competitors, the market, etc. The income statement is about profit and loss. We've talked about and now understand the main drivers for revenue performance and cost in each segment. So let's look at the top-line revenue performance. As we can see here it looks a bit choppy when you're looking year over year. Not enough growth and some dips. Let's look at the bottom line aka profit. Here we see decent growth over time with a big spike in 2017 due to the Trump tax changes. Ideally I'd like to see about the same growth rate percentage between the top line and the bottom line. Now let's dig into the 10-K to find out what is happening in the interest in tax rows to see why net income improved so much in 2017. The change primarily came from the tax rows, so let's into that section of the 10-K. So what we see here from the 10-K is that Pfizer benefited greatly to the U.S. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The U.S. corporate federal statutory income tax rate was reduced from 35% to 21%. So Pfizer had 13.4% effective tax rate in 2016, and a negative 73% in 2017, and a 5.9% in 2018. Ideally, I'd like to see their improvements coming from their own growth and efficiencies, but the tax change was a nice benefit for Pfizer. A positive trend we see here is more contribution of revenue internationally, with China growing year-over-year. So that's great to see. Now let's look at their balance sheet. So what is a balance sheet? Think of a balance sheet as just the financial position of a company at a point in time. It shows what a company owns, which is called its assets, what it owes, its liabilities, and the shareholder's equity, aka the net worth. It's called a balance sheet because the assets have to balance the liabilities and equity. Let's look at the balance sheet to see what information is in it. The top section are the assets usually listed in order of liquidity. By that I mean cash is listed first as it is very liquid, and then short-term investments are listed, which is slightly less liquid than cash, etc. When you see the word current before assets and before liabilities, it basically just means in the next 12 months. So current liabilities are those that are due within the next 12 months. Another note, the numbers listed in this balance sheet are in thousands, so In the 2018 column when you see cash and cash equivalents is 1.139 billion dollars even though what is written there looks like 1.139 million the next section in the balance sheet are the liabilities often listed in order of how soon they are to be paid and the final section on the balance sheet is shareholders equity also known as net worth this is the amount of money that would be returned to shareholders if all the assets were liquidated and all the company's debt were paid off There are three main things on the balance sheet that I like to look for when I'm quickly analyzing a business. Number one is the company growing. Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? And number three, do they have too much debt? Let's start with number one. It is important that the balance sheet is growing, i.e. its equity is growing. I look at that because I feel that over the long term, a company's stock price should move generally in the same way as its equity does. So if a company can consistently grow equity over a long term and you can buy it at a good price, then it should be a decent investment. So is Pfizer growing year over year? Well equity equals total assets minus total liabilities. Let's calculate it manually. So in 2015 equity equals 167 billion minus 102 billion, which equals about 65 billion. 2016 equity is about 59.86 billion, 2017 equity was 71.6 billion, and 2018 equity is about 63.7 billion. So no, we don't see are growing every year. By the way, you could also choose to do things like use a modified total assets and subtract goodwill and intangibles or whatever if you felt that that modified metric was more appropriate for the company and sector you were evaluating. Ideally I'd love to see 10% equity growth each year. Even better would be seeing that growth rate percentage increase year over year. But for a solid, mature, large cap, that is very challenging. Why else do I want to see that growth? Well, if they are increasing their equity over time, that means they are retaining their profits to buy good assets and or pay down debt. The number two item I like to look at on the balance sheet is if the company can cover its short term debt obligations i.e. how easily can the company pay from existing assets for its ongoing expenses, things like payroll or capital equipment. A way to get a gauge on that is for us to calculate the current ratio, which is a liquidity ratio that measures whether a company has enough resources to meet its short-term obligations. So current ratio equals current assets divided by current liabilities. 2018's current ratio is $49.9 billion divided by $31.3 billion which equals 1.6. So Pfizer's current ratio of 1.6 indicates an adequate degree of liquidity with $1.60 of current assets available to cover every $1 of current liabilities. A ratio higher than 1 indicates that a company will have a high chance of being able to pay off its shorter-term debt, whereas a ratio of less than 1 indicates that a company may not be able to pay off its short-term debt. Ideally, I'd like to see a current ratio between 1.5 and 3, so we are good here. Ratios that are extremely high might suggest that a company is hoarding assets that aren't strictly necessary, so worth digging more into. Number three, let's figure out if Pfizer has taken on too much debt. The debt-to-equity ratio offers a way for us to gauge whether a business has taken on too much debt. So, debt-to-equity equals total liabilities divided by equity. So, in 2018, total assets of $159.4 billion equals $99.6 billion plus $59.75 billion. That means 2018 equity was 52.8 billion, and 2018 liabilities are 45.766 billion. So debt to equity equals 99.664 divided by 59.758 equals 1.66. Higher debt to equity ratios tend to indicate a company or stock with higher risk to shareholders. It means that a company has been aggressive in financing its growth with debt. But if it's too low, it's a sign that your company is over-relying on equity to finance your business, which can be costly and inefficient. 1 to 1.5 is generally what what I look for. So 1.66 is a bit high there. So overall, their financials are mediocre. I'd like to see less debt and more top-line growth. We want to find out if the company is bringing in real cash, which is good, or if it is generating cash by borrowing money or selling pieces of its business. So we want to figure out the free cash flow number, or what Warren Buffett calls the owner earnings. The number we calculate represents what the cash flow that is available to all stakeholders of the business before it is divided up to the debt holders or equity holders. Free cash flow signals a company's ability to pay down debt, pay dividends, buy back stock, and facilitate the growth of the business. So owner's earnings equals free cash flow, which equals the cash flow from operating activities minus CapEx, or the net change in property, plant, and equipment. This is money the company can use to build the company faster. It's the money the company can give to its owners. So we find the net operating cash flow and subtract CapEx. So in 2018 we had 15.827 minus 2.042, which equals 13.78 billion. In 2017 we have 14.85 billion and 2016 we have 14 point three seven billion. High or rising free cash flow is often a sign of a healthy company that is doing well. Finally, let's calculate return on assets. ROA measures how efficiently a company can squeeze profit from its assets. ROA equals net income divided by total assets. ROAs over 5% are generally what we're looking for. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. So 2018 ROA equals 11.153 divided by 159.422, which equals 7%, which is good. In 2017, the ROA is 12.4%, and in 2016, the ROA is 4.2%, which is a little bit low. So let's move from their financials and talk about their leadership. The average tenure of the Pfizer management team I evaluated is about 17 years, which is excellent. You can generally gain some confidence in the company if you think their performance has been decent and the management team remains the same. I did a Google check on some key execs and didn't find anything that was disconcerting. I do this because execs move from company to company and sometimes a bad one gets in. There are examples of execs who have done fraudulent activities in one company only to get hired by another company. While companies perform due diligence, I still like to check. Pfizer got a new CEO as of January 1, 2019, Dr. Albert Borla, who was previously their COO. He succeeded Ian Reed, who was their CEO and chairman of the board. We have to dig into Reed's performance at Pfizer over the last decade, since Borla has only been CEO for eight months. Reed was chairman of the board since 2010 and had been with the company for around 40 years. During those 40 years, he worked through a bunch of leadership positions in different parts of the company both domestically and internationally, so he really knew the ins and outs of the org. He was a key driver in many of their mergers and acquisitions, including that of Medivation and Hospira. He was also a key influencer in their decision to spin off Zoetis, which is a Latin word which means pertaining to life, which is their animal health division. Ian Reed took Zoetis public in 2013 and had the largest IPO of a US company since Facebook IPO'd in 2012. Pfizer used most of the money through the IPO to pay off their existing debt. While he was CEO, he had 30 FDA approvals, a shareholder return of 250%, and outperformed the S&P 500. He had over $120 billion direct return of capital to shareholders, which I love to see. He built up a big drug pipeline with dozens of approvals through 2022, with many potential blockbusters on their hands. He also increased their dividends from 80 cents to $1.36, which was a 70% increase in 10 years. And he led Pfizer to donate hundreds of millions of doses of Zithromax to tackle the leading cause of infectious blindness in the world, called trachoma. And because of that, the number of people at risk of blindness has been reduced from more than 300 million in 2010 to about half of that now. Reed had some failures as well. He attempted the two biggest pharma deals in history when he went after after AstraZeneca and allergen, only to be resisted by them and regulators. And then the acquisition of Hospira in 2015 never had the business split that was thought would happen, and some folks feel that $14 billion purchase of Medivation was too pricey given the outcomes. As you can see, Ian had a hard time increasing revenue consistently through his tenure. But to be fair, Pfizer was losing some key exclusivity on certain drugs. A key way to gauge a CEO is to see how he moved the stock for the company. And in this chart, you can see that over his tenure, he lagged the S&P 500, but he did have some good results overall. Now let's talk about Dr. Borla, their new CEO. He has more than 25 years of experience with Pfizer and has held a number of senior positions across a range of areas during his tenure. He led Pfizer's IH business, where he increased revenues and profitability. Dr. Bourla also established the IH Emerging Markets region, which had billions of revenue and large growth. Under his leadership within four years, the oncology business tripled in size, the vaccines business grew 50%, and the consumer healthcare business significantly improved its profitability. So this is a guy who knows the ins and outs of how things work at Pfizer, and he delivered great results, so the board rewarded him with the CEO role. Next to Dr. Borla is Frank D'Amelio, who's been Pfizer's CFO and head of operations. He's been at Pfizer for about a decade and has a history of holding top positions at other large companies. Another area you should research when you want to invest in a company is knowing what controversies they might be involved with now or in the past, as well as what risks they face now. In 2009, Pfizer was levied a $2.3 billion fine for illegal off-the-shelf marketing of Bextra. Off-shelf drugs, also known as over-the-counter drugs, are drugs that don't require a doctor's prescription and thus can be bought directly from supermarkets and convenience stores. In 2012. Pfizer was fined for bribing government officials in Europe to encourage hospitals to use their drugs. In some countries, they bribed doctors with cash to prescribe their drugs. Pfizer admitted that between 1997 and 2006, it paid more than 2 million of bribes to government officials in Bulgaria, Croatia, Kazakhstan, and Russia. Pfizer also admitted that it made more than 7 million in profits as a result of those bribes. In 2018, Pfizer was convicted in federal court of violating the RICO racketeering laws and had to pay out $141 million for off-shelf marketing of its gabapentin drug. In terms of risks, there's a few of them to be aware of. So I think the overall healthcare industry is at risk right now, especially based on whichever political party is in power. This could mean facing changing regulatory risk or something even more impactful to Pfizer. There is significant pressure to provide healthcare for lower costs in some markets and this evolving landscape could negatively impact them. The disparity in farmer pricing around the world could also impact their US bottom line. Trump has called for a variety of solutions but so far nothing has changed. This could impact the entire industry depending on which direction it goes. As you can see here, the price have been going up on certain pharmaceuticals which could also be at risk based on how political winds are blowing. So here you can see the huge disparity that exists for Viagra. In the US, you'd pay $58 for a pill, whereas in India, you only pay $4.44. So I guess it is hard to compete with India. There is a risk with having a new CEO, but I think that has been mitigated given his long track record at Pfizer. There is risk in the upjohn separation because they could lose product diversity, will have less free cash flow, and now they become more of a pharma company that is focusing more on home runs based on innovation coming into their pipeline. That being said, it isn't abnormal for a company to shed lower growth business units in favor of higher growth ones. Sometimes they just keep their lower growth units to, to fund growth in other business segments. Ultimately, doing this should make Pfizer's stock look much more growth-oriented, which is what investors want to see. But obviously, there's some risk in that. Losing patent exclusivity is a risk uh, to be aware of. And finally, their pipeline is a risk, which they're working to manage by the spin-offs and acquisitions and investments. So big question, is it worth buying? Let's look at a few more data points. Let's look again to see how it performed relative to the S&P 500 in the last five years. So it was doing OK at keeping up with the S&P 500 until a few weeks ago. And if we look at how it has performed year to date, so we see that Pfizer stock has lost about 20% in 2019, though that is less of a loss than much of the pharma sector. One question we should ask ourselves is, why is Pfizer doing all these reorgs and these acquisitions and spin-offs? Well, the changes they are making is so that they can become more focused on development of blockbuster drugs, which should reward their stock at a higher multiple due to their increased profitability. By spinning off some divisions, their new base of revenue will now be at a lower amount, so it will be easier for them to have and maintain a higher revenue growth percentage going forward. Pfizer estimates they will have cost synergies of at least $1 billion annually by 2023 due to the Upjohn deal, which means better operational efficiencies. The unfortunate news is that tends to mean layoffs for some people, which really sucks for those that are impacted. My heart goes out to any of them. They are doing Upjohn to position themselves for faster potential growth going forward, which should then reward the shareholders accordingly. So should we buy it, given everything we've learned? Well, you need to make your own decisions on this. But for me, the price is getting more compelling to strongly consider it. I'd like to see it drop a bit more, but with everything I know about it, it isn't a bad value to get in at, knowing there is some risk involved. That being said, I think there are some better deals out there that align more to what I'm looking for right now given my entire portfolio, so I'm not adding cash to my existing Pfizer position, but I'm definitely still dripping into it and we will watch it closely. But that is why investing is so nuanced. I'm looking at how much cash I have, when I would need it, what the rest of my portfolio is like, how Pfizer looks, my personal risk tolerance, etc. That's why I can't give you recommendations on if you should buy it or not. I can merely say what I'm doing and suggest that you need to make your own decisions based on your financial state, your potential financial state, and your research into the companies you might want to invest in combined with your risk tolerance. Ideally I'd like to see Pfizer in the twenties to get really excited, but I can understand why there is more interest brewing in Pfizer these days. That being said, If a family member of mine had a large amount of cash sitting on the sidelines that they wanted to invest and they didn't have a portfolio, then I would recommend Pfizer be part of their overall portfolio as a smaller position, and then cost averaging in over the next few months would probably be the path I would take, even though studies have been done in the past show that dumping all your cash in at once usually yields the best long-term returns. But with the approximate decade-long bull run we've had, I don't think it's a bad idea to make your moves over time financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risks. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double-checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me, after you completely understand it. And to quote Nassim Taub from Skin in the Game, Hidden Asymmetries in Daily Life, beware of the person who gives advice Telling you that a certain action on your part is good for you, while it is also good for him, while the harm to you doesn't directly affect him. So please don't blindly follow anyone's advice on YouTube without doing your own rigorous analysis. Have conviction with all your investments. My hope for this channel and community is that collectively we can educate, inspire, and entertain one another as we share our thoughts, experiences, and perspectives about dividend investing. I hope to learn from all of you, whether you have never invested or are a veteran, as I believe that each person has their own unique and valuable background, which should be shared, and which I'd appreciate hearing. I have a lot I still need to learn about investing, so I've really appreciated watching videos of more knowledgeable investors out there than myself, such as PPC Ian, and Phil Town, and Sven Carlson, to name just a few. Finally, remember that there will always be people out there with smaller portfolios than you and larger portfolios than you. That doesn't matter. What matters is if you are taking actions today to try and better yourself for tomorrow. So I'll see you in the next video, and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons, and share this with others.